You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. As well. Once you have your Bibles, turn in your copy of God's Word to John 7.37. Not a Boeing 7.37, but John 7.37. In John's Gospel, we continue our sequential exposition through this book in our New Testament, the fourth uh, Gospel, and we find there just working our way passage by passage. And so we return again to, uh, to, to John and pick it up in the Feast of Booths, that, uh, that Woodstock-like festival of Israel where countless Jews have migrated to Jerusalem. We got a glimpse of it and saw it last week as the uh, festival was beginning, that feast was beginning and through the middle days. And, and, and now we come to the final day uh, where God's people have been sleeping in tents and commemorating their deliverance some 1,200 years or so prior to this, but their deliverance of God's people from their Egyptian slavery. And also remembering the 40 years of then wandering in those booths or tabernacles where the feast gets its name, those tents that they slept in. It was their way to remember God's grace to deliver them out of their slavery and God's grace to persevere them along the way as he uh, gave them uh, water from the rock and food to eat every day and led them by that pillar of fire by night and cloud by day and also as they commemorated and remembers God's grace to bring them home to their promised land. And even we, as we look back, we can see the picture of God's grace to us to save us, to deliver us out of our slavery to sin and God's grace to carry us through our life even now and as we anticipate our home going with the Lord. But in the text now, we come to the last day of the feast we'll see, which uh, this day is going to encompass the next several chapters. All the way into chapter 10 is this all in the same day, the last day of the feast. And it opens with Jesus making this bold proclamation and an invitation to himself. Look at your Bible. Let's uh, read it uh, together. I'll read out loud. You follow along as we pick it up, John 7, 37, and we read to the end of the chapter. Follow along in your Bibles. Here it is. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officer answered, No one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? 
Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now this is God's word for God's people. Now, Jesus cries out in this passage, and the question as we've come to in every passage in John or the, uh, the, the center point that we're trying to get to is what is it that we're to believe about Jesus and how can we have life in his name? And so write this down as the center point of the passage here, that whoever comes to Jesus will receive the help of the Holy Spirit. The central truth of what Jesus is teaching and also their responses to him here, this central truth that whoever comes to Jesus will receive the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, John, uh, or Jesus rather here, uh, uses this image of water, an image that we've seen along the journey already in John's gospel, teaching us about our need for Christ, that we have this thirst in us. In John 4, 14, with the woman at the well, Jesus would tell her, whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst again. Likewise, uh, Jesus has spoken of the Holy Spirit along the way in John's gospel, but typically in his involvement with our regeneration or in that moment when we are transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son and the Spirit's work there. In John 3, the Spirit blows where it will and saves whom God draws to himself. But now these images, now the metaphor is taken further as Jesus now stands up in this crowd to issue this gospel invitation to come and believe where we get our series title and what we've seen along the way in the gospel of john and so we take jesus invitation or his proclamation and pair that with then the responses in the rest of the chapter here and they really combine now to show us what we can expect when we come and believe in jesus That as we come to faith, as we take Jesus at his word and accept his invitation, there are things that we can expect to be true about our life. And so write this down in your notes. Here's the thing. As we examine the text closer, we can expect when we come to Jesus to be indwelt by and deployed by the Holy Spirit. Write that down. It's the first part. It's what we take out of the first three verses of our text. There is an inflow and an outflow, or we are indwelt by and deployed by the Holy Spirit. Come to the text now. It, it sets The scene is set for us really just briefly in verse 37. It requires, again, some explanation. For the first century Jewish people, they needed very little because it was very poignant. All they needed was this reminder that it was the last day of the feast and the great day. I like that, right? Just the, the explanation or the, the title of this, this final. It was the great day here. And again, the Feast of Booze and the traditions of that day are likely unfamiliar to us. But you remember each day there was this ritual where God's people led by the priests would carry the ethrog in one hand or the citrus fruits and the lulabs in the other hand, a combination of the palm branches and olive branches and myrtle branches. And they would go in chanting and, 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 and go in procession around the temple. 
But on the final day, there was a big celebration here. And so let me read this, uh, this caller from Kent Hughes and his commentary on that day. Just listen to this. It says this, It was the final day of the feast, the seventh day, the day the priest would again come to the temple, followed by the great throng chanting their psalms and waving their lulabs. They would come in through the water gate. The trumpets would sound again. But this time, the priest would circle the altar seven times in succession, just like the walls of Jericho. And when he came around the sixth time, he would be joined by another priest carrying the wine. They would ascend the ramp to the altar, and there would be a pause as the priest raised his pitcher into the air. The crowd would begin to shout to the priest to hold it higher, and he would try to do so. It was considered the height of joy in an Israelite's life if he could see the water being poured onto the altar, end quote. And so imagine this, the, the multitude of uh, Israelites gathered around at the height of joy. The celebration is great. They're all uh, straining to see this water being poured out. And it's maybe at this moment... In the crowded celebration where that hush descends and they're all in eager anticipation where Jesus raises to his feet and lets his voice be heard. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's a pretty poignant scene, is it not? A pretty powerful timing in, in uh, God's providence for Jesus to stand up and teach and to let his voice be heard. Talk about a powerful moment of inviting someone, inviting this crowd to come and drink of Jesus. Question remains for us this morning. Have we come? Have you come to Christ? Have you acknowledged your thirst repented of your sin, and placed your faith in Jesus, believing that he and he alone is your Savior. See, as we do, as we come to Christ, then what we can expect, even as Jesus is alluding to here, as he's taking it a step further, we can expect to be indwelt by and deployed by the Holy Spirit as well. And so grasp with me what Jesus is saying here, what he is proclaiming, and what he is inviting us into he begins it by saying, if anyone thirsts, and the reality is all of us thirst. We all are thirsty here. We all have this soul thirst, this thing inside of us that only Jesus can truly uh, satisfy. Within us, there is this discontentment, disappointment, and even dissatisfaction with anything else that we try to fit and fill with where only Jesus can fit and fill. It's that itch that can't be scratched and the high that can never be attained, the finish line that can never be crossed, and the hunger that can never be satisfied but by Jesus and him alone. It's in, the, it's in our soul, the inner man, the inner woman, where this, where this resides. The sons of Korah tap into this in Psalm 42 as they say, As the deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And this thirst exists in every human being. 
and water is a great metaphor for it, though, even in our day, because of the accessibility that we have for water, our senses are dulled to uh, our need for water. And yet spend a few days in the wilderness away from the faucets that occupy our house, and you will recognize our need for water. Psalm 143 also taps into the reality that Jesus is, is, is talking about here, the soul thirst and the satisfaction found only in Christ. Turn over there for a second, because I want you to see the parallels to what Jesus is offering here and what David gets at in Psalm 143. Turn over there for just a moment. Psalms are in the middle of your Bible. Psalms are like the poems and songs that give voice to the glory of God and our emotion for God. But Psalm 143, let's pick it up in verse 6. He says this, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. There again is our need, the thirst that exists in us. And now he comes in a, in a place of desperation where we recognize our thirst. Verse 7, answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. For it is in the moments, like the wilderness we talked about, like in the moments of desperation where we recognize our thirst and it's where we turn to in the satisfaction that counts. Where does David turn? Verse 8, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me, he says, make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. See the imagery here that he's, that he's lifting it up like an empty cup. He's lifting up his soul for the satisfaction from the Lord. Last several days I had our kids, Zarin was out of, out of town and Savannah constantly needed th- something to drink and she would lift her cup up to me and say, you know, why we water? How are, you know how she says it as a little two-year-old here, wanting me to fill it up for she could not reach the, the faucet to fill it up. She would lift it up and in the same way, church, We lift our soul to the Lord for only he can fill it. In the morning, as we come to him in his word, let me see your steadfast love. But where else can we find it but in his word? Where will we learn to, to, to know the way that we should go? Where do we find, as verse 9 alludes to, deliverance from our enemies? Where can we find refuge but in the Lord? Where do we find instruction or teaching, verse 10, to do God's will but in his word? In his word, this is why we begin our day why we begin our day in the book, in our Bibles, learning, looking for the love of God, solidifying our trust in the Lord, knowing, finding the way that we should go when we need direction and deliverance and instruction. Where? Because this is where the good spirit, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. See, David is coming in his, in his desperation. He acknowledges his thirst. He's going here and begin, there ends it by asking that God's spirit would lead him on level or a solid foundation on level ground. And essentially, this is what Jesus is inviting us into as we come to him in chapter 7 of John's gospel. Come to me, all you who thirst. Do you thirst today? Yeah, we thirst for God. Whoever believes in me, is this where your trust is? Do you believe in Christ? As the scripture has said, it's quoting uh, here from 
Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, without honey and without price. Another illustration, right, as they would know this, this verse of a festival where everybody, everything is for sale here. Now Jesus is saying, all this is free in me. It's all free. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, likely a reference to Zechariah 14, verse 8. But now he's referring to the Holy Spirit, this inflow and outflow of the Holy Spirit, as one commentator refers to the Spirit as the self-replenishing stream in God's people. And so don't misunderstand what Jesus is teaching here and John as he's giving these kind of you know, footnotes in verse 39. It does not mean that the Holy Spirit had been inactive all this time or was absent from the Old Testament. It's not what he's getting at, but what he is uh, referring to is that there would be a significant change in once Jesus ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and the birth of the church is born. And so he, he, he's referring to there's a significant change that is coming as the Holy Spirit is going to be at work, flowing like rivers of living water in you, indwelling in you, and outflowing from you. Not this stagnant pool here that is a, just a cesspool of disease, but now inflow and outflow of God himself abiding in us. He'll teach more as we go through John. We'll get a more extensive teaching on this in John 14, uh, 15, and 16. And Jesus' last words as he's teaching his disciples about how the Holy Spirit, as he indwells us, he helps us and he teaches us and he reminds us of the things that Jesus says because we're so forgetful and he convicts the world of sin. And so this is what the Holy Spirit will do in us and also out through us as we come to Jesus. In Acts, Acts 1.8, he says, here's what this outflow, the, deploy, uh, the deployment looks like. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you at your regeneration. When you are saved, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, what is he getting at here as the Spirit comes in us? He mobilizes us or deploys us for ministry as his witnesses, saying the same thing, issuing then the same uh, invitation that Jesus is saying as we just say, come to Jesus. If you thirst, come to Jesus. Believe in him and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And that has just been our message on repeat. That has been our mission as God's people since this. This is the mandate. This is the expectation of what our life looks looks like as we take up Jesus' invitation. The way that he helps us is he dwells in us, giving us the help and comfort that we need and deploys us then with the message on mission for King Jesus. That's what we can expect as we come to Christ, as we walk with him, this new purpose in our life. But the story goes on as Jesus issues this invitation. Now, as the people who hear this respond to it initially, there are some additional things that we can expect as we come and believe in Jesus. Write this down. It's the second point in the second paragraph of our passage here. You can expect division over who Jesus is. You can expect division over who Jesus is. Some believe, some are saved, some say I'm in, and others remain skeptical and say, I'm out not coming in. And so it's interesting here. Jesus just stands up. He says like two sentences and it sets the whole crowd ablaze, doesn't it? The crowd is volatile. This happens all the time in Jesus' life here. The crowd is they're gathering. They're already volatile. Jesus just drops some truth bombs and just like 
sets the place ablaze. And some rightly confessed. You see it? Verse 40, they heard these words. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Referring to Moses' uh, great prophet in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. And we've seen referenced in, uh, along the way all, all, already here. Right? They're beginning to grasp, I think, that this isn't just like some Old Testament prophet, but that this prophet is actually the Messiah here. And so they rightly confess that, but also some others say, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the, the Savior, the one to save Israel. And some believe, some are, 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 are take him at his word and, and confess it. But in verse 42, or then verse 41, but some say, is the Christ to come from Galilee? See, others remain skeptical, calling into question these Old Testament prophecies that they knew and rightly knew about the Messiah. One, that he would come from David's lineage, 2 Samuel 7, that God had given him. And two, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, found in Micah 5, 2, that prophecy there. They know this and they're questioning. They remain skeptical that Jesus uh, meets those two qualifications. And so, church, what's the irony in their skepticism? What's the irony in their attempts to discredit Jesus based on these two things? He actually meets these two requirements, doesn't he? They, they apparently just misunderstand or don't know about Jesus. They're just dismissing him outright, not even realizing that Jesus is from David's family. Read Matthew chapter 1. It opens up, and you have the whole genealogy there, right? All those hard names that are hard to pronounce, and you wonder, where did these come from? Why is that included in the Scriptures? To show us where Christ has come from, that He is indeed this fulfillment. And genealogies here, church, I, they're, they're so important for us in the Bible. I get it, I get it. In our, like, our daily Bible reading plans, when you, find, you open up your Bible and you find a couple chapters of genealogies, we all get super excited about reading them, don't we? Like, oh, you know, they're hard to read devotionally. I get it. All those names that we can't pronounce, we under, don't understand why, and yet, note this, they're so critical to the biblical narrative. It doesn't mean you have to memorize them. It doesn't mean you have to even understand it. It means, yes, that you can just kind of skim over it and know, God, I know this is important. Help me understand it in your good timing, right? Because they're there for important. But the irony is that Jesus is from David's lineage when we just stop and look through it. And second, that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, and, but was raised in Nazareth. And so while they're, while they're all confused about it here, it's like well, Jesus does actually meet that requirement. And this isn't actually all that unusual for how many of us even in here were born in one city, but actually raised in another. Were you? Yeah, I was. I mean, many of us were. I was born in Platteville, Wisconsin, but raised in Belmont. So many people like born in one town, but then raised in another, and others were like bounced around whether because of your parents' job or military or for some other reason here. But the same was true for Jesus. And the thing is, like over all this, we learn there's a division amongst the crowd: some who believe, and some who still want to arrest him. Some who still want to take Jesus away. And yet, but yet we learn he's invincible, right? He can't be apprehended until he gives himself up. So note this, church, note this. Like, this isn't just some isolated instance. Not for Jesus and not for his followers. We've seen these kind of reactions, this division, this confusion over and over and over to Jesus' teaching. And it is likely something that you too have experienced in your own life. 
confusion over who Jesus is, is the norm. Many mythical, even wild or weird or outright wrong ideas over who Jesus is exists in our day and has in every time. Jesus is our homeboy. Jesus is nice. Jesus is not God. Jesus is God. Jesus is, you know, the, the, the options are really endless. Confusion exists and thus division over who Jesus is is the norm. Division in your own life. Division amongst those whom you love. Jesus warned about this in Matthew chapter 10. And have come and set man against his father. On and on, like family members. It's not that he's come necessarily just to be antagonistic, but the truth of who Jesus is divides even families, people who love each other, who share blood bonds. In church, this is just a hard reality of following Jesus. It's familiar ground for anyone open about their faith with people that they love and the people that are in their life. It's familiar ground for anybody who's open about their faith with their co-workers. Confusion exists. Division will exist. It's familiar ground. People, you've experienced the distance that is created amongst roommates or friends that you have been super close to along the way. And as you've become serious about following Christ, it has created this distance or separation in a friendship or friendships that you've held dearly for a long time. It's a painful reality for parents with adult children now hostile to the things of the Lord. Parents walking faithfully with Jesus and now kids who don't. Does this church just mean that we cower in silence? That we cut and run to a new job, to a new friend group? That we cut the kids out of our life? By no means. (laughs) By no means just means that we embrace that this is the hard reality of coming to Christ. We expect it so we don't get caught off guard when it happens and we let it take us lower and more dependent in prayer, asking God to open their eyes to the truth that is seemingly right there in front of them. The truth that is right there and so easily explained, like Jesus was born in Bethlehem and just raised in hell. It's right there. Let's just look at the Jesus. It's so right there and yet... take us, make us more bold and winsome, making the most of the small, even the small opportunities that God gives us to talk about him, to talk about who Jesus is in a way that draws them, hopefully, in God's timing and sovereignty to themselves. Makes us more dependent, makes us more gracious so that even if it does escalate to the point of derision and scorn, like the uh, remainder of this chapter, that we have grace to continue walking and speaking and living with truth and love. See, there's some expectations when we come to Christ. One, that, that we can expect to be indwelt and employed, deployed by the Holy Spirit. We can expect a vision over who Jesus is. And write this down. It's the last point from the text here. We can expect derision from those who hate Jesus. We can expect derision from those who hate Jesus. And there's kind of two uh, scenes again, or two parts in this scene here. The officers who are actually listening to Jesus and not the Pharisees. And also Nicodemus, who's actually weighing what Jesus is uh, saying or weighing the scripture and not just Pharisaical opinions. 
And so let's just kind of flesh this uh, scene out so we can fully grasp what's happening here. Jesus has just stood up, right? The crowd set the crowd ablaze. They're trying to arrest Jesus. And so these officers, those are they're the, the, the temple guards, the Jewish temple guards that uh, were uh, you know, under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin where the chief priests and Pharisees were a part of all that. They had been sent numerous times, even the days before to arrest Jesus. Now, apparently here, sent to arrest Jesus and have failed. They're unable to. Jesus is invincible until he gives himself up. They can't lay a hand on him. And so they return, and now the chief priests and the Pharisees, in verse 45, are deriding them for failing. They're upset. In other words, like, why are you police doing your jobs? This is what we pay you for. Why can't you? You had one job to go and arrest him, and they can't. And look at how they respond. The officers answered, like, no one has ever spoken like this man. They are mesmerized by Jesus' teaching. Like, this, this guy's a generational talent. These are common language, right? No one ever liked this. They're actually listening to his teaching, which incenses the Pharisees even further. And they're like, You're, are you deceived too? And then referring to themselves as a standard, like, well, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? You know, like, we, we don't believe in him. Why, why are you guys believing in him? And then issue this heavy indictment on the crowd, right? The, the, this crowd does not know the law is accursed. That's heavy. And yet is also ironic. For what's the tragic irony here? The chief priests and Pharisees who supposedly have the law are themselves cursed because of the law and their unbelief. And it's they, they who tragically sit under the curse of the law that they cannot keep in their own strength. Christ is here to deliver them from that curse. It goes on, furthermore, Nicodemus here, who's one of them, Nicodemus, who's part of the Sanhedrin, he speaks up. Where have we seen Nicodemus before, church? What chapter? Where is he at? Chapter 3, yeah. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. A great chapter, and he speaks up, and, he, and, it says, and essentially what he's like, he's like, guys, let's just be slow to jump to conclusions. Let's be slow to prosecute uh, this man. Let's give him a hearing first. Let's, like, everybody just chill out. He's trying to have, like, some measure of reason, it seems like, here. And what, how do the chief priests, they love that, don't they? Verse 52, are you from Galilee, too? Like, you're one of them. Go search the Bible, then. Go see, you know, if a, that a prophet arises from, from Galilee. What's the tragic irony in that, church? They're still riding this, like, discredit Jesus train. Yeah? They're still trying to get there. So even the fact that Jesus does rise from Galilee, and that, like, I'm not even sure what difference that makes and why he can or can't come from Galilee other than their, their uh, racial prejudices against the region. The, the tragic irony is that Jonah, one of the most beloved Old Testament prophets... We learn in 2 Kings 14.25 that he is from Galilee. He's from a place called Gath-Hefer, which was like two miles from Nazareth where Jesus was born. They're deriding one another. They're in amongst their own ranks and ignorant of the very scriptures that they claim to know. 
And so redemption, what do we make of all this? You can expect this. If you are serious about following Jesus, you stand up for the truth, there is often backlash from those who hate Jesus. You'll be thought of as ignorant of reality, deceived by fairy tales. Your rationality and ability to reason will be called into question. Today, among other things, you may be accused of being a bigot, a racist, a judgmental, uncaring about the invulnerable, intolerant, and viewed as an enemy. You know what? Before God saved us, we were the same way. Before God saved us, we hated God and we hated his people. Whether we were kids hating our siblings, God brought us to faith, or we were adults hating God's people, hating God around us. But God, being rich in mercy, rescued us. Opened our eyes to see the thirst that was within us that only he could satisfy. Opened our eyes, compelled us to come to him. Being rich in mercy, rescued us. And though attacked, notice how nowhere in the story, nobody retaliates. Nobody argues back. There's no, you know, there's no like verbal beatdowns. There's no, you know, there's no fighting here. No retaliation, just simply the truth put out there. Here's this, this is what to expect. Jesus himself would go all the way to his death. He would walk all the way through his life, all the way with the joy set before him, derided in the worst possible ways, had the most horrific things said about him with ever out once retaliating. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, he was silent. Maybe you're thinking this morning, like, man, that's impossible. I can't do that. Jesus can. He's God, so of course he can, right? I don't know if I can. I don't know if I could stand up and say these things. I don't, I don't know. If like somebody was you know, uh, saying this stuff, I, I don't know. I, I have to fight back. I don't, know if I, I don't know if I can do that. Redemption, who helps us in these moments? The moments where it's beyond our strength, you're right, it's the Holy Spirit. Flowing out of us like rivers of living water, helping you precisely when you need Him most teaching you, convicting you, reminding you, comforting you, encouraging you, exhorting you in the moments where you need it most and want to speak up or don't know what to say or are heartbroken at somebody's skepticism or outright hostility. It is the Spirit who helps you. Let that sink in for a moment. See, more life-changing than running water in our faucets, more filling than 40 years of daily bread and meat and water is God's grace to us to give us His Spirit to sustain us moment by moment in our years of wandering in the wilderness, of meeting these moments here uh, in our salvation and walk with the Lord when it is hard. It's God's grace to give us His Spirit. And this is what we can expect. This is the kind of help that we can expect, the kind of mission and purpose that is in our life, the kind of division and derision and scorn and hardship in our life. When we take up Jesus' invitation to come and believe, he gives us all the help that we need. Let's pray and ask God to do just that.
God in heaven, what a, uh, what a stirring story of your work in our lives. Jesus, I pray that even now that you, by your spirit, would be at work in us. If there is anyone thirsty here this morning who've tried and failed to satisfy, to quench that thirst and created things, Would you, Jesus, save them even now? But Lord, we need more of your spirit. Spirit, would you uh, help us in these moments now? Moments where we are uh, tender because of someone who we love that doesn't believe. The places where we feel beat up act even because of our faith. Spirit, we need more of you. We need you to flow in us and out from us, God. Would you make us courageous? Even if we're the only ones standing up in a crowd, calling people to Christ, whether literally or just metaphorically. God, would you do what only you can do by your Spirit? Help us to that end, Lord. We believe you. We trust you. And we worship you because you are so great. We extol you. We worship you. We adore you because of your greatness. We pray these things now in the name of Christ. Amen.